I count it a real privilege to do that. I count it a privilege to have extended times in God's word that you pay me for. I mean, what a, what a privilege and joy to do that. Uh, and what we've been in for quite some time, we've taken little breaks here and there, but is the Gospel of Mark. Most of the 10 months has been in the Gospel of Mark. And I invite you to turn there to chapter 8, Mark chapter 8. And the Gospel of Mark, um, I hope it's been a blessing to you. And uh, we're almost halfway through the book. So next week we'll be like halfway through the book and it'll be a high point. Uh, but if you've been paying attention, you've noticed that Mark doesn't give a lot of details. He's, he is quickly running through the narrative, right? And what's shown by that word immediately, immediately this happened, immediately that happened. And, and Mark is, is sparse on the details. And, and like uh, a modern play that's sparse on the stage and equipment, it's focusing on the main character, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's putting everything in the back, background and blacking it out so we can see the main character. And the main character of this story is a man named Jesus. And the background is sparse to zoom in on his beauty and glory. Mark has told us, and if you've read it again, uh, Mark chapter 1, he's told us that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's been, he has been uh, making a point to tell us that he's the son of God and the son of man, this Messiah who is bringing a kingdom and teaching the good news, the gospel, that the way into the kingdom is through repentance and faith, turning from your sin and turning to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You remember that there is a Three groups of people surrounding Jesus at all times, right? Either the, the religious crowd, the crowd, this group of people who is, very, is, is poor, they're looking uh, for a Messiah, they're looking for someone to save them, and they're crowded around Jesus, mostly marveling about his miracles. The, there's the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees, who, who are around Jesus uh, basically opposing him. And then there are the disciples who are around Jesus. They love him. They believe in him, but they're confused. Each of these, all of them have uh, differing um, responses to Jesus, the varying responses. The, the crowd is amazed and marveled and pleased with him. The Pharisees were sort of scared and threatened by him, but annoyed by him, antagonized by him. And the disciples, you know, were confused by him. They were believing of him, and they welcomed his, his, uh, his reign and rule, but they were confused You know, the miracles that Jesus did did not only prove that he was the Messiah, but that he was their heart, what their hearts had longed for. Jesus Christ was the only one that could satisfy them. And the crowd saw it one way, the Pharisees saw it another way, and the disciples saw it yet even another way. Jesus was the only one who was sufficient to meet each of those groups of people's need. Maybe you're in one of those categories this morning. You may be like the crowd. 
you marvel at Jesus. Sorry. You are amazed at the things you read about him. But you wonder if they're true. Or, or maybe you're like the religious people who have come to church all of your life, uh, but you're a little afraid of Jesus. You're afraid of what he might demand. You're a little annoyed at him by the way he talks about people. Or maybe you're like one of the disciples. You're, you're all in, you believe in him, but sometimes he just confuses you. Jesus has an an, Mark has an answer about Jesus in this text, I think, that he is the only one that can satisfy you, no matter what group you are. He's the only one who is sufficient to meet your needs. And we're going to look at it in three, in three different points, that Jesus was the only one who is sufficient to meet the needs of the hungry, the demanding, and the dull. So those three points, we're going we're to see Jesus as all satisfying and all sufficient to feed the hungry, abandon the demanding Pharisees, and teach his dull disciples. He is the only one who can satisfy. We'll begin in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Hear God's word. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, just, just a reminder of where they are. Uh, back up in chapter 7, verse 31, uh, they are in the region of the Decapolis in the Sea of Galilee, the same region where he healed the man with the legion of demons. And Jesus is there, and a crowd has gathered around them. Verse 2, Jesus says this, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and he had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 400 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This is God's holy word. So the crowd have been gathering around him, and and, uh, we are meant to notice, I think we are meant to notice, that this is part of Jesus' now extended Gentile mission. Remember last week that Jesus had this interaction with a Syrophoenician woman, and, and she is, she's begging him to heal her, her daughter, to cast out the, the demon from her daughter, and Jesus says a weird thing to us, but uh, he says that the bread, the children's bread, that's Israel's food, right? This kingdom belongs to Israel. The, the children's bread should not be given to the dogs, that's the Gentiles, but should be uh, first given uh, to the children so they can be satisfied in what they eat. 
And the woman responds in faith, saying, yes, but even the dogs get crumbs from the table. And this was an extraordinary picture of faith that this woman had in Jesus Christ, that he had compassion enough, and he had enough to give her, that even the crumbs from the table of this, this, this meal would satisfy her. And Jesus said that she was, for this statement, was able to go away and that her daughter would be healed. And, and now it looks like Jesus is going on. He is definitely in Gentile land, and, and he is, looks like he's ministering to Gentile people. So this is, a, this is a, a further extension of his ministry. Now it's going from the Jewish place to the Gentile place. It's going from, from the children. Now he's going out to the dogs, to the, to the Gentile people, to people like you and me who are not born Jewish. And Jesus is taking his ministry out and out and out. And you notice the compassion of Jesus as he gets prepared to feed this hungry crowd that, that as I read in, in uh, verse uh, 2 and 3, that Jesus said, I have compassion on these people. Uh, I, in the, my insides uh, are welling up for these people because they are about to go hungry. And if I send them home, they're, they're not going to be able to, to make it. They're going to they're gonna faint along the way. And Jesus is he's preparing his disciples, he's, he's, he's showing the way that the kingdom is breaking in on the nations. And how do you think the disciples will respond? In verse 4, you, 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 or you heard as I read it, the disciples. You might not notice it at first, but it's a different response than they had in the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. They said, well, let, let, let's send these people away so they can get the, some food and then come back and hear Jesus teach, basically, was the, was the idea of it. But the disciples here say, how can, how, how can we, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And without trying to read too much into it, it, it is at least a different response that these people, these kinds of people, these Gentiles, it seems to be that the disciples are at the very least forgetful about what Jesus can do. Jesus had, you know, in chapter 6, he had fed the 5,000. It, it may be that the disciples lacked faith uh, that Jesus wanted to do this, or misunderstood Jesus' mission to spread the kingdom to ex expanding circles, or, or maybe they were even xenophobic. Uh, we don't know, but it seems like at the very least they misunderstood what Jesus' purposes were, or that he could do it. The character of, dis of his disciples are forgetful and misunderstanding, and maybe fearful about what this expanding kingdom would look like. And so Jesus begins to show how satisfying he can really be. In verse 5, he, he asks them questions. He, he does this a lot. What, this, he's a good teacher, and he's asking the disciples, not because he doesn't know, uh, but because he's drawing 
without faith. They ask, how can one feed? He says, how many loaves do you have? They say seven. There's 4,000 people and there's seven loaves. And we find out there's some fish too. And, and Jesus, uh, Jesus is, it blesses the meal and then multiplies it so all the people can eat. And there are left over seven baskets full. And in the miracle, we're seeing, I think that we're seeing a picture of the Passover and a foreshadowing of his own passion. There's bread in the wilderness. Uh, Sean read for us from Deuteronomy uh, that, that told us, uh, it told us about the wilderness wanderings, and, and, it, and it tells us in Deuteronomy and in Exodus about how, how the people of God had bread from heaven come down to them, and they had everything they needed. And, and the reason that God did it, he said, you heard Sean read. It was so that you know that you don't live by bread alone. This Passover meal as the people had come out of Egypt into the wandering wilderness, the Passover meal was, was picturing uh, Jesus own sacrifice, his own body and blood. And as they went to the wilderness, they had another reminder that there's, there's this bread that God, will, that God will provide everything that they need. There's a, pitch, a picture of the Passover and the wilderness and bread in the wilderness here. And, and Jesus is, Mark is pointing our mind to, to Jesus not only being able to replicate that, but to be that for them. The picture of the Passover is also a foreshadowing of his passion. You know, Jesus, in not, not very long, actually, in the next th- three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, is going to tell his disciples what he had come for. This repetition in the middle of the book tells us that Jesus came to suffer, to die, and to be raised again. This was the foreshadowing of his passion. This bread of life that could sustain a hungry stomach was actually just a picture of the bread of life that could sustain, that could save the empty soul. And Jesus would say in in Mark chapter 10, I give my life as a ransom for many. And this passion as he suffers, this, this passion as he suffers and dies and then is raised again, is the centerpiece of the gospel and the kingdom of what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching them that as he gives his life as a ransom for many, not just Jews, but Gentiles also, that the kingdom is expanding. That his passion is going to provide food for many, many people. And it's like a it's just like a, throwing a rock out into a lake. It has the, you throw the rock into a still lake, the ripples go out and out and out. And this was Jesus' ever-expanding kingdom. This, is, this, this picture and foreshadowing of Jesus' passion is seen as in, in his words. As he, as he blesses the love. Did you notice the, the formula? He directed, has he, after he directed them to sit down in verse 6, he, he gave thanks and he 
broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. He blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. He'll do that same formula in chapter 14, verse 22, at the Last Supper, when Jesus sits down with his disciples to have a meal with them, he'll break the bread and say, this is my body given for you. He'll pour the wine. He'll say, this is my blood of the new covenant given for you. And Jesus is giving them just a taste in this miracle of this feeding of the greater miracle that he will do in his own death and resurrection. Jesus is, Jesus is patiently, winsomely teaching the disciples that he is the only one that can satisfy them. He's the only one that can satisfy this hungry crowd. Their literal, their literal hunger of their belly, but also the hunger of their soul. And you notice the result in verses 8 and 9. Everyone ate to their satisfaction. Everyone was, was satisfied. They had everything that they needed. And he met their physical needs, which is pointing to something far greater It's not their empty stomachs, but their sinful souls. And he was able and willing to do it. No one coming to him will go away hungry. No one coming to him starving and asking for food will go away hungry. I think sometimes for some of us who, uh, who, who love the Reformed tradition, and we love election and predestination, we forget that election and predestination does not preclude the free call of the gospel. And sometimes, you know, even we forget that or we're accused of, of forgetting that and, and, and maybe it's to our own shame, but Jesus is saying the gospel is free to all. The whole crowd can take and eat. There's a free call that goes out to, to anyone who will hear and believe. And we let, we let Jesus uh, handle the hard task of understanding who the elect are. The free call of the gospel uh, is not precluded by election and predestination. Everyone can eat and be satisfied. And anyone who comes to him and wanting to eat will be satisfied. Jesus gives everything that they need. And did you notice, he not just satisfied them, he gave them more than they needed. It's like uh, go, you know, going to a restaurant and having leftovers of a very good meal and, and taking the doggy back. And, and you, know, you, you take it home, and as one comedian has said, yeah, get, put this in a doggy bag, I'll take it home and throw it away tomorrow. That's what most of us do with our doggy bags. No, nobody else does that besides me. These were not just doggy bags, friends. The word that he uses here uh, uh, is different than the word for basket in the feeding of the 5,000. This is a word for, for a hamper that a person could fit in. Uh, the, the word in Acts where Paul is let down out of the city in a basket, it's that word. So it's huge. And they were full. They were to the full. There was more than enough. I don't want to make too much of the numbers and the symbolism there, but the, the numbers are repeated. And maybe it's for a reason. So uh, there's, um, 
uh, one commentator has, has said this, it has been suggested that there is a more direct significance in the numbers in that five books of the law and 12 tribes of Israel, that's the first feeding, are clearly Jewish numbers. While the four corners of the earth and, this, and seven, which represents completeness, point to a, a worldwide dimension to the Messiah's mission. Now, wh- whether that's firm or not, I don't know. But I do think there's something about the numbers there. And I do think there is something about the trajectory of what Jesus is doing as he's going from Jewish to Gentile lands, and he's taking the gospel to the Gentile people. The Messiah's mission is worldwide. It's going to all of these people. It's going to Jew and Gentile. It's, it's going to, you know, the, the people of God and the foreigner as well. It's going out and out and out. And I think the reminder for us may be even, you know, even in a political season where there may be differences on, on what we believe about immigration policy and what all of that entails. But friends, we, we must remember that as God loved the foreigner, regardless of your immigration policy, if, if God brings people from other countries to our country, as Christians, we must believe that this is for the gospel's sake. As the church, we, we must believe, instead of seeing them as a threat to us, we must believe that they are people that need to hear the gospel and come into the family. And the question is, he's provided all of this. He's given thanks He's provided everything that the people needs. Will his enemies and his disciples finally understand? And we read it in verse 10 already, but Jesus gets in the boat with his disciples and he goes to the district of Dalmanutha, which is somewhere, I, th- I think, on the western side of the lake. And as soon as he gets out of the boat, at least that's the way Mark makes it sound. As Jesus is getting out of the boat, or he's, he's established on the other side of the sea, the Pharisees come to him. And you notice in verses 11 through 13, they're de- demanding something from him. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. This is God's word. So what would make Jesus walk away from somebody? What would make Jesus turn his back get into the boat and go away. In this story, it's the nature and the motive of the Pharisees' request, demand for a sign. Imagine storming into the White House and demanding the presidential nuclear codes that authorize a nuclear war. It's absurd, right? You'd be committed for this. This is what these people are doing. This is what these religious people are doing. They're coming in and they're demanding of God, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, the one who rules everything, the wind by his word, 
He can read people's thoughts. He knows everything. They come to him and they demand a sign. This is just absurdity. If you think Jesus is being unfair to the religious people, just, just realize what they are doing. The nature of their request is a demand. This is idolatry, friends. They are saying we, they're not even saying they will believe in him, but they're coming across saying we will believe in you if you do something for us. That's not how we come to Jesus. We either believe Jesus or we don't, but we cannot demand from him a sign. All of us have been there, haven't we? If you would just have do this for me, I would believe you and follow you. If I could have this sign, I would know you love me. And Jesus is saying, I will not be domesticated by anybody. I'm not one, like one of the local gods who you can appease with your, your drink offerings. I'm not to be controlled. I'm the Lord of the universe. And friends, is it not ironic all the things, that, all the miracles that Jesus did? All the things that he did, and they, they don't think that's sign enough. The sign that they want is, a, is an apocalyptic sign from heaven. You notice it's a sign from heaven. They want an apocalyptic sign from heaven. But what they want is to show that God has favor on Israel. Friends, what they're asking for is a different understanding of the kingdom of God that Jesus is teaching. They want their own nation to rule over everything. And Jesus is saying, I'm king. And I'm bringing the nations in, and I'm going to rule over them. The nature of the request is idolatry. They want this apocalyptic sign from heaven that they will not get. The motive behind their request, did you notice this? It's temptation. They did it to tempt Jesus. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Do you remember the last time someone was testing Jesus other than the religious people? Do you remember who that was? You can read about it in Mark 1, 12 and 13. Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he's there tempted by Satan. And it's there that Jesus answers Satan you, I, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He, here, these Pharisees are showing themselves to be in league with Satan. The very thing they accused Jesus of in chapter 3, to be in league with Satan, to be, be doing miracles and, and casting out demons by Beelzebul, Jesus says, or, or, or Mark, I think, is trying to make a connection here that they're actually the ones in league with Satan. They're testing, they're tempting Jesus. Why are they doing that? They want to see him destroyed. They have a different understanding of what the kingdom means. They have a dis different understanding of what salvation means. And Jesus, in his very own 
miracles in his very presence, in his very teaching and works of power should have been signs enough for them. And we all have a little Pharisee in us, don't we? Demanding of Jesus something before we'll believe in him. It's a human condition. It's, it's not just people who are not Christians. It is, is Christians as well. We do this. And God, but God is after our faith. God was after the Pharisees' faith too. Jesus was after their faith. Faith believes God's words about Jesus' person and work. And, and faith says, I need you. It doesn't demand anything. It says, Jesus, I need you. If anything, it demands mercy. I can only survive if I have your mercy. I'm in need of you, and you're the only one who can meet that need. That's what faith says. And the Pharisees do not display that faith. And Jesus' response to that is grief and anger. You know, he has compassion on the crowd. He has frustration at times with the disciples, but he's very patient with them. He's angered at them sometimes as well, but he displays anger and grief at the re- these religious pretenders. And when Jesus turns his back on someone, it's a very serious thing. It's a serious thing for Jesus to say, I will not give you a sign. Matthew tells us the sign you'll get is the sign of Jonah, the sign of death and resurrection, the sign of resurrection. That's the sign you'll get, but I will not give this wicked and adulterous, adulterous generation a sign. Jesus turns his back on them, and they will not show up again until chapter 12, verse 13, and again trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus is done with them. It's a very serious thing when Jesus turns his back on someone and will contend with them no more. The Pharisees are not only the ones misunderstanding, are they? Isn't it, isn't it something how that those who are closest to Jesus were blinded by him as well? His own disciples, dull in their understanding, they had been with him the most. They had seen the most of what he had done. They had seen his most consistent teaching. They had seen his, his patient attitude with them. They had seen everything. They'd, they'd seen someone who had never sinned. And yet they're slow to understand. So what does Jesus do? Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is God's word. 
So Jesus is patiently teaching his disciples, and he's doing it in the privacy of a boat. He's catechizing them. He's building their faith through, through his teaching. And as they get in the boat, Mark tells us this little eyewitness testimony that they had forgotten to bring bread. They'd forgotten to bring bread, but they had one loaf in the boat. Some commentators say that, you know, um, this is possibly a veiled reference to Jesus. They forgot to bring bread, but they did have one loaf in the boat with them, and that was the true loaf, the true bread of life. I don't know if that's the case or not, but it does make a lot of sense. I mean, did they have bread or they didn't? They didn't have physical bread, but they had spiritual bread. And Jesus' first words to them is a warning. And he says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod are not the same thing, but they are the same thing. The leaven is, is in the New Testament and in the Old Testament a metaphor for evil. And the leaven of the Pharisees was an evil teaching. Their misunderstanding of the kingdom of God and what the Messiah was here to do led them to have evil teaching. It led them to traditions of men that veiled and, and discarded the commandments of God. The leaven of, of Herod is a sort of a, a maniacal desire and want for power, also against God's kingdom. In fact, God, Jesus is going to tell the disciples later on, the greatest in the kingdom is actually the least. The least is the greatest. It's not the one who has the most power or sits in my right hand. It's the least in the kingdom, the one who serves, that gives up their life. Jesus is showing that this evil of, the Her of Herod and the Pharisees is a misunderstanding of the kingdom of God and his teaching surrounding it. It shows how dull they are in verse 15, doesn't it? He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And they're like, oh, shoot, we forgot to bring bread. Did you, did you notice that in verse 15? And he cautioned them, I mean, verse 16, uh, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Again, another reason to understand that one loaf may be referring to Jesus. Their minds are on, on the physical and the temporal. Their, their minds are on what they don't have. Their minds are on, on the limited resources. And Jesus is pointing out that you guys are numbskulls. You're not tracking with the direction that I'm teaching you about the kingdom. In fact, in Mark 6.52, maybe one of Peter's comments, it says that they did not understand about the bread, the feeding of the 5,000, because their hearts were hardened. And the, the disciples with their thick heads and their misunderstanding, the reason Jesus doesn't turn his back on them is they're still believing and following. They're just confused. And if I'm honest, I'm more like the disciples than I like to admit. Dull in my thinking. Slow to believe. You know, as a pastor in, in, in seminary that held high the word of God, I believe that God's word 
is the way God builds his church. But friends, I, I as a pastor, am tempted to use other means in order to see success in this church and other churches I've been at. I believe that the word normally works slowly over a long period of time and that bearing fruit is God's job. God's the one that gives the increase. But I get depressed when I don't see immediate fruit from my labors or our labors here. That's dull thinking. That's not eyes of faith. That, that's being slow to believe the promises of God and have faith that this is up to him. So if you're like me, you're more like the disciples in this way. Jesus, I believe. Please help my unbelief. I'm too focused on the, the physical and the temporary as opposed to the spiritual and the eternal. God, forgive us for that. God, forgive me for that. You know, oftentimes it's, it's too easy to see, to remember what we lack in our resources, just like the disciples. Oh, yeah, I forgot to bring bread. And Jesus, Jesus is like, what are you talking about? I'm not talking about the bread. You know, the, the lack of resources that we might see in our church or in other churches or in the church as a whole in God's kingdom during our time, that the lack of resources are not, Jesus, are not our problem. The seven loaves and the few fish were 4,000. They're not our problem. They're Jesus's problem. That Jesus is the one who gave us the resources we have. Jesus is the one who will multiply the resources we have. And thankfully, just like the disciples, he's handing the bread and the fish to us, and he's saying, go serve. Go serve. And the disciples come to him in the boat with their questions, or, or Jesus is, is questioning them, and he uses the physical now, all right? So, so the disciples misunderstand, and they say, they think this, it's the physical bread over the, the spiritual bread. And so Jesus uses the physical to teach them about the spiritual He's this, he's this great teacher. And, and he tells them, why are you talking about bread in verse 17? And in verse 18, he, he tells them again, and he asks them questions, just like a good teacher does, drawing out the information. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? So he, he reminds them of their, of their eyes, their ears, and their minds, and pointing them back to the Old Testament that is all, a question and a condemnation on not believing. But he's, trying, he's drawing faith out of them. He doesn't end with those questions. He goes on and he says, don't you remember? I've done this before. And he rehearses the miracles with them of multiplying the bread. Then he repeats all the numbers again and, and, and all that they had left over, reminding them uh, uh, of the true significance of this. The true significance of having 12 leftover baskets full of food and seven leftover baskets full of food. He was the bread that could satisfy he was the bread that was going to be building the kingdom, that was going to satisfy his people in order for them to be doing the work of the kingdom. 
He was enough to satisfy them and the whole world. He was enough to satisfy the crowd. He was enough to satisfy the Pharisee. Do you remember the Saul of Tarsus? Do you remember what he said he was? He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't turn his back on every Pharisee. Jesus doesn't turn his back on every religious person. Thank God for that. Jesus doesn't turn his back on people who grew up in the church. He is enough to satisfy them as well. And you can read about Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. And and, and Paul comes to Jesus. Well, really, Jesus comes to Paul. And he gets converted. Jesus is enough to satisfy any Pharisee. Any person in the crowd who's merely marveling at Jesus, any disciple who is truly confused about who Jesus is, he is enough to satisfy. He's sufficient for everything you need. And he's drawing all men to himself, he says. Jesus... um, If you're not familiar with the Christian story, Jesus came down not to just do miracles and not just to feed and heal people. That was an important part of what he did. He did not ignore the needs of people. That that was not his main priority. Jesus came preaching the gospel about himself. And then at the end of his life, he was actually betrayed by his friends. They, They gave him up. One of them gave him up for 30 pieces of silver. And then uh, as he's taken to Pilate, all of them abandon him and he's there alone. And he's crucified in the cross. And it, it wasn't just for a crime. It wasn't for a crime merely. There was, there was cosmic purposes to this death on the cross. It was a taking of your sin and mine. It was a dying in your place after he lived in your place. And, and then he rose again from the grave three days later, proving that his sacrifice was enough to satisfy, not just God's wrath, but enough to satisfy you so that you can come and be part of the kingdom. And Jesus, and Jesus is inviting you this morning. Maybe you've never put your trust in him. He says, believe, I can satisfy you. Maybe you are a Christian and you say, I believe him, but uh, he's not always satisfying to me. He wants you to know that he is more than satisfying. He's more than enough for you. And Jesus Christ will satisfy every longing in your heart. Finally, maybe not on this earth. We all have our troubles and struggles. We, we will all be wanting. We're not triumphalistic here that, that you know, we get everything we want when, when we receive Jesus. No, it, not in this life will we get everything we want. But in this life, we have everything we need in him. And friends, as we turn now, making a transition to the Lord's table, the Lord's table is a gift to us. It's a representation. Like, we have these little Lunchable-type elements. I know they're, they're not ideal. I get it. Um, but these elements that, that we have, as you peel it back and you get that little wafer out, that bread is a reminder 
not just of the bread he multiplied, but of the bread of his body broken in your place. Broken for you. Broken for you. And that, that juice, as you peel it back and, and you look at it, you're supposed to remember that Jesus shed his blood. The blood is the life of men, and he did it for you. So you wouldn't have to shed your blood. It's a gift. The Lord's table is a gift to us, reminding us that Jesus is the bread of life, and he truly satisfies so having repented of our sins and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, we feast together as a family, remembering his death and testifying of our future life together with him. We believe this meal is for believers who have trusted him and believers who have been baptized. If that is you, you are welcome to the feast that shows the one who is ultimately satisfying. He's the only one that can satisfy you. Now, we're going to pray a prayer of confession. I'm going to pray one corporately. I'm going to give you a moment of silence for personal confession. It may be the first moment of silence you've had this week. And it may feel weird for you. It may feel a little deafening at times. But we want to give you that space so you can commune with God. Confess your sins. You can confess them freely, knowing that He knows everything. That we are laid bare before him, and we can confess everything in the way that the scriptures tell us to confess, biblically. But we can confess hopefully because Jesus Christ gave his body and blood for us. So I'm going to pray a prayer of confession and give you time of silence for personal confession. Lord, we come to you to you alone, remembering that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we look to you, Jesus, alone for our forgiveness of sins, knowing that you have already forgiven us, and you tell us to come to you examining ourselves and, and, and confessing our sin before you, knowing that you've forgiven, already have forgiven, and will forgive Father, we are like the disciples and sometimes like the Pharisees, full of unbelief. Sometimes we're more marveled by the stories about you than captivated by your glory. Forgive us. We confess that we have looked on one another some of us, we have looked on our wives or our husbands or our roommates or our children as less significant than us. We know that that's a lie. We have believed lies about other people. We, we have looked at other people as not created in the image of God, but someone to be used for our ends. Forgive us. We've been tempted to be afraid during this political season, not remembering that you are in control. Please forgive us for Jesus' sake. Heal, heal us. Hear all of our prayers in Christ's name. Now take a moment for personal confession. <laughs> 